Hello and welcome back to the Marching On Together podcast. I'm your host, Liam Horsley, and today we are on another Euro 2020 episode, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Mr. Matty Mauler. First time I saw you in person yesterday, and now we're on a podcast together. The world is uh, moving forward. Yeah, uh, cheers for having me on again, mate. Moving back to a bit of uh, normality. Um, had uh, the Nandos, which I uh, won in a bet, didn't I, about a little Bukai Saka uh, getting yes, on the plane. Too. So, um, <laughs> yeah, that was, that was good to catch up. and. Good to talk all things football and watch uh, a very entertaining uh, France versus uh, Portugal last night. Very good. Yeah, I think we picked a good game last night. There's been some uh, some kind of slower type of games that we'll talk about uh, throughout the episode so far in the tournament. But last night was definitely uh, definitely not not those games. Um, but in terms of the podcast, then we're going to talk a little bit about the group stages. Not too much depth because I think we'll cover some more of the teams in a, in a bit. And then we're going to go on to preview the last 16 of the tournament. And then next week we'll come back and do the do the quarterfinals. But let's kick it off with a bit of group stage chat. Uh, give me kind of one storyline that can be a, a team, a player, an incident, a topic that's been in the media uh, that you, that's kind of interested you either positively or negatively so far. Yes, yeah, so I think the obvious one, I think everyone's probably anticipating this one, it's just the, the Christian Eriksen incident, wasn't it? Um, you know, yeah. but for those not aware, I'm sort of currently uh, sort of renovating a house at the moment with my girlfriend. So I'm, I'm trying to catch as much of the football I can as and when. I've, sort of got down 20 minutes into the um, into the game and you just messaged me saying, are you seeing what's going on here? Obviously, turn the game on and then it's just silence and a few of the medical staff and players surrounding a player on the floor. Um, obviously, that was, that was Ericsson. And then, um, yeah, you actually found out some quite good information quite early on, didn't you, about the sort of like the defibrillators and, you know, his sort of like his state. And yeah, luckily yeah. He, he sort of um, he came round and we'll see what the future holds in terms of his playing career. But yeah, horrible way to, to start the tournament. But how everyone sort of um, responded, came together and the sort of the reception that the Danes have got since um, has been has been amazing, really. So yeah, it's a negative, but it's been spun into a positive in some way. And just, yeah, hopefully he gets back on the pitch at some point, mate. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, he's done a statement and stuff now, hasn't he? And phoned a few of the players and seen a few of his Danish teammates and stuff. So he seems to be as good as you possibly could. I think he's had surgery, hasn't he, to have a um, basic defibrillator fitted inside his heart now. So it does seem like it'll be a bit more of a long-term thing. But I guess when he was down on the floor, we were all worried it was going to be much, much worse than that. So it's just good to to see him okay and just fair play to the rest of the team. I, I can't even believe they played any more games, let alone played the same night. Um, I just find that mind-boggling. They had that mental strength to, to do that. I think it's crazy. Yeah, I think it was sort of against their will, wasn't it? It was a bit of a joke, really. That sort of um, what's going through your mind, your mental state. You're not really in the optimum state of mind to perform, are you? But yeah, it was not great. And I think, you know, looking back on that, I think UEFA would probably, you know, have to sort of put something in place should that ever happen again. Um, some sort of safeguard to just ensure that the players are sort of okay to play because it undoubtedly affected the Danes, didn't it? Um, that that yeah. incident, of course. Yeah, but they lost the game. Not that that matters, but they lost the game and they could have got injured or whatever, you know, just not being focused on mm. kind of the task at hand. So, yeah, I think it was bad. Basically, UEFA, if anyone doesn't know, only offered them to play that night or to play the next afternoon, but very early afternoon. And the players were basically like, well, we don't know what news we're going to get once we leave the stadium. Um, and we don't really want to be going back to a hotel 
that we're not used to staying there overnight, coming back the next morning and playing. Like they think it would make them worse, so they decided that they had to play then. So yeah, I think that there needs to be more protocols in place for sure. But at least he's kind of up and about now. Um, can go back home with his family soon, apparently, according to the latest reports coming out of Denmark, which is nice. Uh, and the third game in the group, Denmark was sensational with the, the fans kind of going crazy for them in the stadium. It was a full stadium as well, so the whole nation was behind them, which was nice. Um, cool, moving on to another storyline. Uh, this one, I guess, negative as well for me. Uh, I kind of chose the, the rainbow flag issue at the Allianz Arena. We did speak about this last night in terms of the Hungary-Germany game. Uh, the decision by UEFA to not allow the, well, I guess Bayern Munich slash the German FA to to light up the Allianz Arena with the rainbow flag for the German Pride Week, basically citing political unrest in Hungary for the issue. Uh, and we spoke about it last night, didn't we? We didn't agree with it at all in terms of the reasons for doing it. And I just think it was a bit of a sad end to, to kind of a good week in football. Since the Ericsson stuff's happened, the whole of football's been quite positive. And I think that it was a bit of a negative end to the week with, with how they decided not to let them do that. Yeah, and I also think we were sort of talking about, yeah, like you say, the political sort of circumstances that are currently ongoing in Hungary. And for a team who sort of really turned up to this tournament and, you know, they they were going through as runners-up at one point last night, weren't they, in their group, yeah. in the group of death. And um, it just leaves a bit of a, a sour taste in your mouth when you sort of get this anti-LGBTQ plus um, sentiment uh when you know, when ultimately football, as we saw with the Ericsson situation, it, it brings people together. And um, yeah. yeah, anything which is against that is against the spirit of the game, really. So yeah, not great to see. Um, and again, it leads back to what we were discussing last week about the sort of politics and football. Are they sort of intertwined? Are they mutually exclusive? Are they separate? It, it's a difficult one. It's going to be an ongoing discussion, isn't it? But yeah, not great to see. They should have let them um, light the stadiums up how they wish, to be fair. Yeah, and like you said before, um, you can have a view if football is should involve politics or not. But unfortunately, no matter what decision you make on these matters, it will involve politics, you know, to someone. Like one group of people will see it as like a political statement against them or for them. So I just think that they kind of towed the line incorrectly on that one. And then they released a statement talking about how much the rainbow flag means to UEFA and <laughs> that it embodies all the things that UEFA stands for on the same day. And I was thinking you've not quite read that situation correctly. So I think it was just a bit of a, a misstep by UEFA. And that's two missteps there with the Ericsson and the uh, the rainbow flag stuff at the Allianz Arena. I think those two stories aren't going to cover them in, in glory as a as an entity, I guess. But yeah, I, I think it's an institution that's made decisions like this for a long time now, unfortunately. Uh, and I think it's going to be hard for them to kind of make the right decisions on everything when uh, they've been kind of led this way for, for a long time. But uh, let's move on to your next storyline. Is there a secondary, more positive one? Yeah, it was actually. It was something which um, was flagged up after the game the other night when I think it was when Wales played Italy. And um, we're approaching sort of like the end of the game and Mancini's got one sub or two subs remaining. And he brings on Salvatore Sirigu, the um, veteran yeah. goalkeeper, um, just for some token minutes, really. And um, it was seen as a little bit of a time-wasting tactic or a bit tokenistic but it was sort of like ridiculed by a large portion of the you know people on social media and people at the game I think but the reason afterwards uh, was essentially that I think it was Italia 90 Mancini he was taken uh, as a player um, he, he went but he never he didn't play a single minute and um, because he sort of like suffered throughout that tournament and he really wanted to get on and get a game he couldn't he was like utterly disappointed um, 
what he's sort of like said to all his players, he promised that he'd give them more minutes at the beginning of the tournament. And I think he's used 24 out of 26 of his squad at the moment. So, yeah, you've um, got to give him credit where credit's due. And it's just a nice little positive, really. And just reminds, you know, people that, you know, there's a squad behind that 11 out on the pitch. And, um, yeah, it's good to sort of like get players, you know, all, all the group, you know, representing their country, whether it be for five or 90 minutes, you know. Yeah, that's nice. Obviously, I, I saw the game. Um, listeners won't know this, but my mum was Welsh, so uh, I've watched all the Wales games. I always do, kind of in her honour. Uh, so I was watching that game, and I just saw it as not a time-wasting tactic. I saw it as like, oh, let's just get make sure everyone gets a minute, just because of, just to be nice. I didn't actually think about and know the historical kind of link with Mancini, so that's quite nice, isn't it? And I think that leads on nicely to them and teams in general, because they've probably been everyone's favourite team, would you say, in the tournament? I think that, and that kind of decision only makes people like them even more, I think. Yeah, I think they've been the, the sort of neutral. They, they were sort of a dark horses leading into the tournament, but now I think they're one of the firm favourites, aren't they? But yeah, they're playing the right way, they're doing the right things on and off the pitch. And yeah, like little things like that just sort of add to the to the romance of the Italian team at the moment, doesn't it, really? They can't do anything wrong. <laughs> no, they can't, no. Even like when the, they came out wearing the suits before the game, everyone was buzzing. Then they've won every game, haven't conceded a goal. Uh, and then Mancini's making decisions like that. So I think it's good for, uh, for, for, for Italy going forward. Uh, cool. Well, my next storyline then, uh, it's not negative, but um, obviously we are a English-based podcast. So I thought I'd do one English kind of theme. Uh, and it was just the opinion, the overreaction to how England have a bad result, in everyone's opinion, compared to other nations. Because we saw France draw two games, didn't they, and get through. Obviously, Portugal, what did they do? They lost one and drew, drew one. Germany conceded like four goals in the group stages, first time they've ever done that. And I just think that we kind of saw, didn't we, from our media and our kind of, I guess, fan base that maybe historically we've kind of been burned by teams that should do well and haven't. I think we saw a mass overreaction to a couple of performances where we're clearly trying to win one nil and one performance where we we had a draw when we probably should have won. What are your thoughts on on kind of how that was overreacted to compared to France, who really didn't get mentioned when they dropped points against Hungary? It's a difficult one because I think we're we're always in a sort of like um, I'm not sure about yourself, but I'm definitely in a sort of like British journalism echo chamber. So I'm only ever going to see like a very sort of um, uh, cynical view of yeah. people slagging off the England team whereas you know if you if we were French I'm sure there would be loads of writers for L'Equipe doing something similar you know but um, yeah I, I did sense there was a, a bit of a anti-Gareth Southgate sentiment going on um, after the first two games especially the draw against Scotland yes it was frustrating but you know this is meant in a non sort of like derogatory way but that was a that was the European final for as far as Scotland were concerned. That was a huge game for them, and they were quality. Like they they nullified us. They pressed really well. They kept the ball at times. They fought, tackled. They you know, created some really good chances. That was always going to be like their the biggest game of their calendar year. So um, yeah, the nil nil there wasn't great, but um, I think you know going through the group on paper, winning two games and you know, getting a draw, not conceding a goal, like you would have taken that at the beginning of the tournament. So there's always going to be an anti anti-England sort of uh, agenda going on somewhere. So no one's ever going to be like completely pleased with how the team are doing. But yeah, it's fair as far as what I'm sort of, my view on at the moment, I think they're looking steady. Um, they're looking better, like game after game. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's sort of a sign of a, a team maturing into the tournament, isn't it really? You sort of, 
you don't want to be the finished article straight away. You sort of want to show that progression and you see the, the players settle into a system and um, a way of playing. But yeah, I, I think it's been over the top by a lot of people who are just getting a bit hysterical because we're English. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, basically. Yeah, and I do agree. England had the least amount of prep time, just the number of players in those finals that meant that they started their prep two weeks later. So they're two weeks behind everyone. So you're not going to be the finished article, like like you said. Um, and the only other thing I would add is if the result would have been a draw of Croatia and then two wins on on the bounce with no goals conceded, everyone would have been buzzing. And it's just funny how it's because it's Scotland, the kind of rival, even though it doesn't mean as much in the modern day era, but the, the historic rival of Scotland, everyone kind of jumped to, to too many conclusions, I think. But it's nice to see it then win the next game and then some of the media kind of relax a little bit. But we'll see what comes over the next week. I'm sure there'll be a lot of stories in the in the papers about world wars and things, but we'll go on to touch about that later. Uh, cool. Next segment then, I just wanted to ask you. Uh, so we'll start off with your first player. Uh, two players that have impressed you. Give me your first player for the tournament that you think's done better maybe than you expected. Um, I've got to admit, I haven't been watching too much of Syria uh, at all. So I was a, quite unaware of... Um, I knew of quite a few of the players in Italy's squad, but I haven't seen them play on a regular basis. You know, obviously get the Europa League and Champions League sort of games and highlights and stuff like that. But a player who's who has really impressed me... Um, for Italy is Berardi, um, the sort of inverted right winger, left-sided player. Um, he's direct, he's got a hell of a first touch, um, goes either way. Um, he's just very sort of, yeah, I think his directness and his sort of willingness to take a man on, it's just, it's just good to watch. And, you know, you always look, you know, in, in that Italy side at the moment, how well they're playing, you're going to look a million bucks. But um, he, for me, has been someone who's stood out. Um, he's just always had the better of whoever he's played against course they haven't played anyone of sort of like uh the same quality as you know a, a germany or a portugal or a france but you can only play who, who you know you you're set up against and yeah he, he's been someone for me who's who stood out so far in the tournament for sure yeah and it was that first game as well wasn't it i think it was that against turkey on the friday night opening game he was just sensational um mm. I, I think a lot of english fans as well have been in the same boat i don't think you know Unfortunately, in modern day culture, a lot of people know about players just due to YouTube or FIFA or Provision Soccer or whatever. But I think a lot of younger fans maybe wouldn't even seen him play that many times just because Syria, I think it's now on a paid channel, isn't it, in England as well? Mm. So it's not as commonly watched. Whereas I think seeing him play in that game, um, him and Insignia on the other side, and obviously uh, maybe a Mobi who people know a bit more about, uh, those three were really good in the first game. And I think a lot of fans would have probably seen them and play the first 90 minutes in a long time unless maybe you've watched a lot of Champions League football but uh, Berardi himself he plays for Sassuolo doesn't he so he's not yeah. been on that big of a stage I don't think yeah that's it he's, a, he's I think he's going to be a bit of a totty isn't he and be a like, one club man it's, it seems because he's approaching the sort of peak of his career and yeah he's yet been tempted to a, a move to a, 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 in a Milan club or Juventus so um, yeah I, he just really impressed me he stood out in the first game and he's just looked class ever since so um, yeah he's, he'd, he'd be the one that I've Initially, we'll all pick out for some praise, yeah. How about yourself? Some, I, I, I've wanted to, it's a little bit of recency bias after last night, but I'm going to go with uh, a man infamous, infamously known oh, for, passing, going to be. <laughs> yeah, for passing to an advertised boarding, which we laughed about last night. I'm going to go with Renato Sanchez, who currently runs the midfield for Lille. And he did run the midfield last night uh, against France. Him, I think Pogba was very good as well, so it's harsh mm. to say. Sanchez was the best player, but I think Sanchez was, if not the best player on the pitch, he was the second best player on the pitch. And I think 
after not starting him in the first game and uh, I'm an avid listener to the TIFO football podcast obviously they know what they're talking about and they were just talking about how slow Portugal's midfield was and how it can't really pass forwards to the strikers or attackers and it also can't really run with the ball forwards especially now Cancelo's uh, at the tournament and I think Sanchez coming into that team against uh, Germany off the bench and then starting against France I think he made them look a lot better just carrying the ball moving the ball forwards being a bit more physical uh, and I just think a lot of English fans maybe just know him from how bad he was at Swansea and now maybe they're realising that he's turned into one of the best talents in, in Europe again just like he was probably five years ago yeah, he um, yeah, he looked really good last night. Like you say, he had that burst. He grasped the ball really well, and um, you know, apart from Pogba putting two or three very nice balls in uh, for Benzema, and uh, I think Mbappe as well. Um, I'd say yeah, Sanchez definitely had the sort of run of the midfield there. Um, we didn't really see much of Kante. Didn't really picked up on it last night. He wasn't really in the game that much. Mm-hmm. Um, I think part of that was just down to Sanchez's sort of like a. Uh, movement off the ball and just picking up his pockets of space and I'm not really sure Kante gave him afforded him the respect that he maybe deserved and he had a bit too much freedom in the first half didn't he but yeah he was very good I'll give you that yeah and there's not many players um, he's not more physical than Kante but there's not many players that look nearly as physical in a game uh, and he actually did look up to the level physically at least which is is very impressive Uh, what's another player then or who's another player I should say that's uh, impressed you so far uh, I've seen a bit of um, the Netherlands and Wijnaldum fresh off his uh, move uh, being announced to PSG. He seems to be sort of like the the sort of engine of that Dutch team at the moment. So he'd be someone that I'd definitely pick out and say, yeah, he's probably performing above expectations. I know he did a very specific role for Liverpool for a number of years, but he seems to be relishing that sort of captaincy uh, role in the absence of Van Dijk. And, um, you know, as I sort of said last week, I think the Dutch, the, their side of the draw is quite favourable for them to get quite far in the tournament, I think. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, he, he's someone who's played well so far. I've been impressed with him and keep an eye on him later in the tournament as far as I'm concerned, yeah. Yeah, he's one of them typical players that you see play for his club and he's he's been good at Liverpool, but he's not a guaranteed starter. Uh, but when they go away with their club team, so many players play a very different role. And he's basically a true number 10, isn't he, for the Dutch? And I think uh, he's he's arguably their most important. I know Depay is very important to them, but I think Ben Aldum, he's captain. I think he's one of the most important players. Scored, what, is it three goals as well? So he's mm. fifth top scorer in the tournament playing from midfield. So that's impressive as well. It doesn't take penalties either. So I think that uh, he's played very well. And I think PSG are going to benefit from that next season when maybe playing him in a bit more of an advanced role. Yeah, uh, my yeah. honourable mention, I, I should say, goes to um, Gosens, the uh, left wing back for Germany. But yeah. you know, I only saw him play for about 60, 70 minutes the other day against the Portuguese. So, um, yeah, if he, if he plays at that week in, week out, he'll be at Madrid before long. Um, he was sensational, wasn't he, uh, for that sort of 60, 70 minutes against Portugal. But uh, yeah, one Alden, but yeah, Gosens, he gets an honourable mention from himself. Yeah, and Nelson Semedo marking him does not get an honourable <laughs> mention for either of us because uh, he has had a terrible terrible tournament yeah which led to Pepe actually asking the bench to sub him last night even when he wasn't really that injured which I found quite funny uh cool well my second player that I want to mention was uh Sheik from the Czech Republic uh three goals as well he's a center forward uh and obviously the goal against Scotland is the goal of the tournament where he scored from like was it 46 and a half yards yeah lobbing lobbing the keeper who was 10 to 12 yards further forward than a keeper should be, but still to have that technique and that kind of awareness to finish that shot, I think was really good. 
the header he scored in the same game was very, very good. Uh, and I thought they didn't get him involved enough against England. But in the first two games, I think he was, maybe apart from Luka Modric against Croatia, I think he was the best player on the pitch in both those games. So I think he's a nice player and maybe we'll get another dream move either this summer or next after that Roman uh, move we spoke about last night failed him a little bit. Mm, yeah, you were saying about he's had a couple of uh, issues with his medical and stuff. But um, if someone takes a chance, you know, if he can sort of prove his fitness, um, he looks like he could be someone who could really kick on for, you know, a bigger European side and, um, yeah, make a bit of a splash in European competitions for club football. Yeah, definitely. And we won't do it today, but we should probably do which player is going to get an outrageously expensive move that they shouldn't get <laughs> this tournament. And it's normally a team like Everton that smashes 50 million on one of these players. And I wonder if uh, Sheik could be that player, but we'll see. Uh, right, cool. Let's go on to talk about the last 16 now. Um, we've got well, probably two amazing games, a couple of real tasty ones, some hard ones to call. Uh, but let's go through and, and try and predict them. We're gonna, we've got an illustration of the draw in front of us, so we're not going to go in time order. We're going to go in, in kind of how this looks. So let's start with one of the best games, uh, Belgium versus Portugal. I think this game's on Sunday evening, I think, 8 o'clock, so a nice kickoff time for, for all of us guys over here. Initial thoughts on how good this game could be, uh, or do you think we'll just get a little bit of a, a dull one with Portugal trying to sit back and, and hold and not lose to Belgium in the first half? I think this is going to... I don't think it's going to be a boring game by any stretch, but I do think it's going to go to extra time. Um, I think we'll see a bit of the Portugal from the Germany game where they try to sit back, soak up the pressure and then try and hit them very quickly with the, um, with the counter. But I do, th- I do worry for Portugal because as we saw um, when they played Germany and as we saw last night, um, you know, if Eden Hazard or De Bruyne, whoever's sort of playing in that left sort of left wing position, if they get one on one, they expose Semedo, you're going to have chances after chance after chance. So um, I, there's definitely goals in it. I don't think Belgium. We said this, didn't we, in the previous pod? Belgium, they're not a spent force by any stretch, but I think they're sort of over the hill in terms of their sort of golden generation. Yeah. Um, I, I think the Portuguese, I just think that Ronaldo, you know, he's, he's sort of a cheat code, isn't he, uh, in some in some games. So I, I do think that it'll go extra time and I think Ronaldo will, will nab a pen or something and, and score even more international goals. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think about how the, so the, in terms of how the teams will line up? Mm. Belgium obviously historically play three at the back or three centre-halves. Mm. Is that wasted when Portugal really only play one through the middle? They don't even really play with a true number 10. They ask Fernandes or Jota to come off the wipes position, like inverted wingers. Yeah. Do you think that's wasted to play three centre-halves in that position? Or do you think Portugal might tweak the system to get Fernandes closer to him or something? I think, yeah, you've got to get people up closer to Ronaldo, whether that be, you know, we saw Jota sort of running off and refusing yeah. to pass the ball to Ronaldo last night. But, um, <laughs> you, um, yeah, you, you sort of will think that George Santos will sort of try and get at that Belgian back line. But, um, yeah, I'm not sure if it's wasted or not. I, I'd be... I know there's calls for Gareth Southgate to sort of switch his side up a little bit and go for a different formation against the Germans, which I'm sure we'll get to shortly. But um, yeah, I'd be a bit, I'd be surprised if, if Belgium changed their shape now. They've looked relatively comfortable at the back. Um, so to to change that in the biggest game of the tournament so far against arguably the best player in the world at the moment, you know, I think that'd be a bit of a gamble. And I think you're underestimating the quality around Ronaldo as well. Um, so, yeah, I, I think they'll, they'll stick with that three, uh, which will sort of go into a five-out of possession, yeah. Yeah, and on the other end, obviously, 
the other top scorer in the tournament is uh, Romelu Lukaku. Him and Kevin De Bruyne look like they've got a hell of a link. That Finland game, they ripped them apart in the second half, just those two alone, basically. If you're a Portugal fan, would you be worried about uh, Lukaku kind of, I guess, positioning himself on the left-hand side in between Semedo and Pepe? Do you think that's the sort of area he'll try and exploit with uh, De Bruyne's through balls? Maybe, but I think Pepe would relish that physical challenge, wouldn't he? And I think... Yeah. Portugal, they've got to do something like, you know, George Santos is a very pragmatic coach. You'd like to think that he's probably seen enough of Semedo to go look defensively. You're a bit short for this. Um, and maybe he'll shuffle his pack. Maybe they'll try something different in the pack. But um, in terms of Lukaku, he's a bit of a bully, isn't he? And he de- he's definitely going to see Semedo as the weakest link. And yeah, we may, we may see that. We may see Lukaku peel onto him and create space elsewhere for the likes of De Bruyne and Hazard to play more centrally. Mm, yeah, I agree. I think Kem De Bruyne is gonna if the, if they play the double pivot and they don't play Renato Sanchez, Kem De Bruyne is gonna have the run of this game. I think they'd be very foolish to go back to that two double pivot um, with Cavario and Danilo. I think that would be a big mistake. Uh, and then the only other question I had for this game then that I had written down was Bruno Fernandez. If you're Portugal, do you start him or do you not start him for this specific game? Obviously. I I don't like him. You know you know my views on Bruno Fernandez. <laughs> You've been knowing them all season. Um, yeah, I, I think it depends. Who have they got? Who would you, who would you play up alongside Jota behind Ronaldo? Then if you didn't play Fernandez, who did they play here last night? It's terrible. So, I've already forgotten. Yeah, yeah. So last night they played a four-three-three, and they played Jota and Bernardo Silva. Yeah. And, but then in the first two games, they played like 4-2-3-1. So Fernandez played with those two, but centrally. Whereas last night, they went three midfielders, didn't they? Because they played Yao yeah. uh, Moutinho as well. So that's interesting I, to know. Will he go three midfielders or will he go two, I, two sixes and a ten? I think you'll. I think they've got to go, they'll go solid. I think they'll use the blueprint from last night, Portugal. Um, cool. I think, yeah, Fernandez is always someone to sort of bring on, isn't he? Um, yeah, yeah, my opinion is that they'll, they'll sort of go with what... You know, I thought they were the better team last night against the French. So, um, yeah, I think they'll probably go with a similar system and similar personnel, in, you know, providing there's no injuries in training or anything like that. And, yeah, Fernandez to come on at some point if they need to change the game. Yeah, I think that makes sense as well with uh, Bernardo Silva being a lot better coming backwards to help uh, Semedo as well if he needs a bit of help on that side. Whereas I think Fernandez is a bit more of a luxury player. I don't think he's going to offer you anything going the other way. So your prediction is... Portugal to win one nil in extra time then, correct? Uh, no, I think it's going to be more goals than that. I think it's going to be either 2-1 or even 3-2. Um, yeah, I think it's going to be goals in this game, for sure. Yeah, I agree. Uh, it could be boring. We'll, hopefully we'll have some disagreements, but I will agree with you on this one. I'm a bit of a Ronaldo fan, as I said on the last podcast. I uh, did get two DMs, funny DMs actually from Leeds fans about that one, with <laughs> the Man United links. Uh, but yeah, I think, they're, I think they're just too good for Belgium. In terms of around the box, I think Portugal are going to be a bit more crucial around the box. And I think that, I don't know why, with Pepe being one of them, but I trust the Portuguese defence more than I trust the Belgium defence. I think that's just because of Ruben Diaz, to be honest. But yeah, uh, yeah, I think Portugal's block. Cool. Well, let's move on to the next tie then. This is all on the same half of the draw. So you'll you'll soon realise, anyone who hasn't looked, how strong this side of the draw is. We've got Italy v Austria. This is the first game, is it, on... Oh, no, sorry, the second game, which is 8pm on Saturday evening. This one's actually at Wembley. Uh, you've got Italy, who haven't conceded a goal or tournament. They've been probably the best team in the tournament. Their odds have reduced from, like, sixth favourite to second favourite. Like, everybody fancies Italy. They're playing Austria, who are a little bit hit and miss, to be honest. They had 
one really bad game in the group, uh, and then they played really well in the last game when they swapped to four at the back and they moved Alaba uh, to left back instead of centre back. I guess my first question to you, mate, would just be: Is there any chance goals? that Austria can win this game? <laughs> like, is there any um, chance? Because they do counter attack quite well, and obviously Italy are a lot more free flowing than most of the other top teams in the tournament in terms of how many people they leave at the back. Yeah, they are, but I think they've also got that sort of balance dialed between attack and defence and, you know, we very rarely see that Italian team sort of, um, you know, give away like cheap opportunities, cheap goal-scoring opportunities for the opposing team. I think there's no other winner in this game than the Italians. Um, yeah, I think it's going to be, you know, fairly comfortable. They rested a few players for the last game, group game, didn't they? So they'll be fit and firing. And yeah, I think it'll be a professional, solid, you know, pragmatic performance in the Italians. I think they'll sort of rein in that sort of uh, cavalier approach a little bit that they've sort of had, especially in the second half of their group games. And they've sort of gone to go for the jugular for teams where I think Italian teams of old been a bit smarter and a bit, probably a bit more boring, really. Yeah. Um, so I think they may adopt a bit more of a sort of, uh, yeah, professional, sensible approach in this game. But um, yeah, I, I don't see an ever winner make them to the Italians. Yeah, they're very clever how they set up, really, because they let their fullbacks go forward and everyone thinks that means they're crazily kind of adventurous. But they do pretty much sit with two holding midfielders. Uh, and now Verratti's back in. He plays a higher eight for them. But naturally, anybody who ever watches PSG knows that he is really more of a sixth type of a player. So he'll do both jobs for them. He'll be able to go forward and start the attacks. But he'll also be able to sit in and just keep possession and just shield the back four uh, alongside, obviously, whichever other midfielder they play with him. Um, the only injury one uh, news to watch is Chiellini. They're not sure if he's going to be fit to play. So they might have to play Bastoni at left centre-back. But I'm not sure Austria offer enough up front really to cause enough damage for that to be an issue, really. What do you think? Yeah, I, I think that, you know, that Austria's sort of uh, main sort of opportunities in this game are probably going to be for set pieces. You know, the quality of Alaba and um, yeah. is it Sibitza as well. Um, yeah, he takes got, a lot of their uh, set pieces, doesn't he? Yeah, you've got those two on the ball. It's the only dead ball situation in like Italy's third. Um, that's probably going to be Austria's sort of best chance to nick a goal. Um, but yeah, I, like I said, a pretty straightforward a formality really for the Italians, I think, to progress through. Cool. Yeah, once again, I agree with you. I do think, I'm not saying this will happen, but it would not shock me if Austria scored. Uh, first, just like you said, from a set piece, you know what? We've seen penalties kind of tick over in the last two match days a lot more in the first one. We've seen more penalties uh, than in the last three Euros, I think, in the third match day. So you never know, that could be a bit of a trend. And Austria could get some sort of set piece goal, but I think Italy would be too much for them. And they're probably going to win for me by a couple of goals, I would say. And and then, like you said, take players off potentially, become a bit more pragmatic in the second half and kind of not risk it because you know in four days' time you're going to be playing Belgium or Portugal. So you don't want to kind of overrun your players too much. But yeah, I think that'll be a, a formality as well. Uh, cool, let's move on to the next game then on this side of the draw. Uh, France, Switzerland. So another favourite, I guess, against a uh, little bit more of a minnow of international football. I think Switzerland have got to the last 16 many times in the last certainly like eight tournaments, but they've I don't think they've only reached the quarterfinal once, so they're not very good in the knockout stages of football. Have you been impre uh, impressed enough with France so far, mate? Because a lot of people aren't impressed with, I guess... Just the attacking output uh, so far. I think before the tournament, there was a lot of noise surrounding this sort of um, the reselection of Karim Benzema, and up until you know last night, I think maybe it was a bit unjustified in the sense of you know the reasons why he was out of the 
out of the side to begin with and um, why you know he was brought back in and there were sort of worries that he would upset the chemistry a little bit and the sort of the attacking verve that Giroud, Griezmann and Mbappe seem to have developed but um, yeah it's sort of like with England I don't, I'm not by no means sort of saying that England are going to go on and win the tournament but the French and we've seen this with teams in the past they start the tournament slow and then they sort of go through the gears as the tournament progresses so you know, I think they've looked relatively comfortable in every game they've played, really. Um, I know last night they, were, they weren't they were at their best and the Portuguese probably um, should have, maybe should have won the game. But um, yeah, I haven't been unimpressed with them, but they, they've sort of, they haven't wowed me as the Italians have. Um, if, if Italy weren't playing how they did, I think everyone would say, oh, France, you know, they look like the best team in the tournament um, over the three games. But yeah, I just think they've been a little bit unfortunate that Italy have been as good as they have. Um, but yeah, I'm not going to get carried away and say that France have been rubbish by any means. Yeah, no, I would completely agree. This the manager's style. He's a very pragmatic manager and he lets the players at the top of the pitch do the business and then the rest of the team kind of be a bit solid. But uh, I would, if I was them, go back to the Rabio starting in midfield over Tolisso, I think. They looked a lot better with Rabio in the team. I think he can just move the ball a bit quicker. Um, whether that's just me not seeing enough of Tolisso or maybe one bad game, I'm not sure. But I think Rabio in the first couple of games did move the ball a lot better than him. So that would be something that I would consider. Um, and even though I really like him, I would just say for Switzerland's purposes, for, for them to try and get a goal, I think Varane has been kind of left wandering around a lot, especially when Pavard goes forward as much as he does. So I would say that like Hungary did, to try and tack down that right side and, and split those two centre-halves out a bit, I think it's something that maybe Switzerland could try. But then again, if Kante's on form, it's going to be hard to hard to do that. But for me, I could easily see Switzerland scoring in this game. I'm more confident in Switzerland scoring than I am probably in Austria scoring against Italy. Mm. But I just think France are going to be too good at the other end. I think Benzema looked a lot better to me against Portugal. So he scored twice, didn't he? But I think that overall... They looked, he looked better, a little bit more able to link up with Mbappe. I just think you need to be able to get Griezmann involved a little bit higher up the pitch, which hopefully they can do in this game. But yeah, for me, I think Switzerland could cause a couple of problems, but I think France will win the game, even if it's not by a big margin. They're, they can just win by a goal and they'll just kill the game in the second half of possession football, I think. Yeah, I don't think we're going to see as many goals in this game as we're going to see in the other two fixtures we've just mentioned. But um, I do see a similar sort of pattern of play, a similar sort of game playing out between, you know, this France versus Switzerland as the Italians against the Austrians. Um, I just think they've got too much quality in every department. And um, yeah, I, I think the Swiss is the, the legitimate sort of like best chances to score are going to be, again, from, from set pieces and stuff like that. But um, you never know, Shirdan Shakiri could surprise us with another tournament goal. Um, yeah. He seems to be uh, loving, you know, loving the fantasy football. <laughs> uh, element of the tournament, isn't it? Everyone's picking him, but yeah, they always love an outside of the go- uh, outside of the box goal as well. Switzerland, I think Shakiri and Rodriguez like to have a strike from outside the box, so you never know that could go in with uh, Loris in goal if he doesn't punch anyone's head off again. <laughs> the luckiest goalkeeper in in the last thirty years to be a starting and captain of that French team. We were saying last night, weren't we? You know, he's, he's, it's club level. He's sort of with Spurs, slumming it with Spurs, and then he gets the captain this great generation of French talent it's unbelievable really he's captain of Spurs as well isn't he so it's interesting yeah. why, why he seems to get picked but yeah well he, he we, does try and you know get himself you know dropped to be fair he did 
deck that <laughs> Denier last night, and he did give away a stupid own goal in the World Cup final, but he still gets picked. He must have some dirt on Deschamps, I don't know. Yeah, and by the way, anyone who thinks that isn't a penalty when you punch a player, <laughs> you've got to have a look at yourself because that is a penalty a thousand times out of a thousand for me. Uh, I think that's and- going to be a, a precedent moving forward, isn't it? Now that's going to be referred to as like, oh, but that <laughs> happened. Do you know what I mean? I think that's going yeah. to be a, a bit of a moment where people are going to go, yeah, keepers probably get a bit too much leeway, a bit too much protection, and really they should be getting bookings and sending offs just as an outfield player if they're irresponsible for what they're doing. Yeah, I agree. It's going to be called the Lloris as well. People refer to it as the Lloris after him doing it in such a in such a big game, but we'll see. Hopefully he doesn't punch any Swiss players in the face uh, in this one. Uh, and by the way, that game is on Monday evening at 8pm as well, so another one under the lights. Uh, let's move on to the last game in this side of the draw. So another top, well, like World, Cup, World Cup finalist and another top team as well. So we've got Croatia versus Spain. Um, this one's gone under the radar a little bit. I think people don't realise how good Modric has been since the England game. Um, so Croatia have improved dramatically because of that. Uh, and Spain, obviously, the, they were kind of described as toothless in the first two games and they come out and score five against very well, let's, not, let's kind of be honest, a bit of a very bad Slovakia team, but still, they still scored five goals. What are your initial thoughts on Croatia versus Spain? Um, it's going to be a close game, isn't it? If this was played two or three years ago, I think you would have probably just favoured the Spanish, but um, although Croatia were very good also. But um, yeah, it's going to be a close game. It's just probably, it could have the most goals in it out of all, all this yeah. round of fixtures. Just looking at the sort of... Um, the frigidities at the back of both teams. Both teams are going forward. I, yeah, I, I think this could be probably maybe the game of the round, mate. I think all the, like you say, all the eyes are going to be on the, the probably the Belgian-Portugal game and the England-Germany game. But I think this has got the hallmarks possibly of being, yeah, a very good game of football. I, I think, although I watched Spain against the Slovakians and um, they looked, like you said, quite toothless, but they obviously banged in three and got two on goals last night, didn't they? I yeah. do think they'll probably have a little bit too much for the Croatians um, in this game. But yeah, I think this this could be the one to watch. And um, yeah, I think that the interesting uh, dynamic could be like the midfield as well. You've got yeah. Pedri and you've got these young sort of Spanish players coming through and you've got the likes of Modric sort of like, yeah, it will be a, maybe a bit of a pass under the baton or something. I don't know. We'll, we'll see. Uh, both midfields are going to want to have a lot of possession, aren't they? I think mm. there's going to be a lot of passes to try and control the pace of the game. And this game's on uh, Monday as well, actually. It's just before the France-Switzerland game. So I think we could see a game that's very kind of end-to-end or even in this game. And then obviously France could bore everyone to death for the 1-0 win. It wouldn't shock me if the, that was the case. But yeah, I agree. I think this game is probably kind of the underdog game of the whole round. I think people are just thinking that Croatia are the same team that played against England. Obviously, Spain struggled to score in the first two games, so everyone sees them as kind of past it now. Whereas, I think against each other, it could be a match made in heaven for for a neutral to have a fun mm. game. I think, I personally think Modric will run the game. I know Busquets would obviously spend more time marking him than he will mark anyone else. Modric plays a little bit higher for the Croatian team. I know in the second game, he dropped back a bit to try and receive the ball more. But he does play more like a 10 than a than an 8 at times for this Croatian team. So obviously Busquets will be around him a lot. So that kind of Real Madrid-Barcelona uh, rivalry will be there as well, which is fun. The only problem is, are any of the strikers in this game going to be able to put the ball in the back of the net? I think that's the only worry, isn't it? Yeah, I, I think um, you've got to look around 
the sort of forward lines, you, you know, Morat is sort of flattered to deceive, isn't he? Um, in this tournament yeah. so far. Um, yeah, I think the goal is going to come from all angles. I don't think we're going to be seeing a Lewandowski-esque sort of uh, um, one-man one sort of juggernaut scoring machine. But uh, yeah, that, that's, mate, that's that's why I think it's going to be a good game. So I think there's going to be goals all over the pitch. Um, yeah. So yeah, it'd be good. Yeah, my opinion is I I can't pick a favourite to win every single game because tournament football is not like that. So I think I'm going to lean with Luka Modric in Croatia. To, to win this game I think he's going to pop up with a bit of magic whether it's a free kick an assist or another outside the foot worldly like he scored against Scotland I think maybe Modric could be the key difference here I think if Spain start Farron Torres I'd be more confident in them I think he looks so good off the bench but at the moment they're playing uh, Jeremy Moreno off the right so if they stick to that team I'd be a little bit worried so I think I'm going to lean Croatia in this one to, to have a bit of an upset Nice yeah can, I can definitely see that happening as well that's going to be a good game mate which one are you going with? Are you going with Spain to win or Croatia? I'm, I'm going to go with the Spanish, but like I say, it's going to be a close game and I could definitely see it going either way. But yeah, for argument's cool. sake, I'll, I'll go for the Spaniards. Cool. All right, well, let's flip over to the easier side of the draw then, uh, which does feature our very own England. We'll start off though with another home nation. So we've got Wales versus Denmark. This game's on Saturday. It's actually the first game uh, of the whole group stage. Wales versus Denmark. I feel like I was, I'm biased. My mum was Welsh, so I'm going to support Wales. But I think most of the world are going to be supporting Denmark in every game they play now, uh, rightfully so, after obviously Ericsson and then how amazing the crowd was in that 4-1 victory in the last game. Uh, in terms of the flow of this game, do you think Wales are going to have to be a counter-attacking team like they were against Italy and against Switzerland? Yes. I, against Belgium, I thought Denmark were very good and they were very unfortunate not to win that game. Um, yeah, they start, just... started well, didn't they? It's, it's this thing, isn't it, now with the Ericsson sort of incident, um, whatever you want to call it, it's sort of like, are they playing like this because of what happened? Or is this legitimately how they play? And the, the first game was just obviously an anomaly due to the circumstances. But yeah, I've been impressed with the with the Danish. Um, good to see them qualify. I think Wales will sort of try and do what they nearly executed against Italy. I think just... Um, sort of try and match man for man all over the pitch, win your duels, and then just sort of, um, you know, strike when the time is right and sort of get numbers up to support Ramsey and Ramsey and Bale, um, and sort of use those moments sparingly. I think yeah, Den- Denmark will probably have the majority of the ball, but I do see this being a, a fairly decent game to watch. Yeah, good one for a neutral. Yeah, I think Denmark uh, very often now moving to free at the back as well. Um... I think if they do that, that will suit Bale because he won't have to quite follow the fullback as much because obviously Wales wing back can follow the opposing fullback um, and their forwards play a little bit more inverted. So Bale might not have to chase back as much as he did uh, against Italy. But we'll, we'll kind of see what formation they do. All I'll say is I think that Wales should go back to the Kiefer Moore lineup, put Ramsey back to number 10 rather than false nine like he did against Italy because I think he's so good running from deep he's so good in pockets of space I don't think you want him wasting time being the kind of lead presser just running around after centre halves and I don't think you want to spend him spend having time trying to win headers from goal kicks I think that's wasted I think they should go back to Kiefer Moore uh, Ramsey at the 10 and obviously Bale and Dan James on, on either side would you agree that that's the best way obviously as an Arsenal fan you've seen Ramsey play a lot is that the best way to get, get the kind of best performance out of him? Yeah, I think so. And also, like you said, with, with regards to Denmark playing three at the back, I think that gives Bale that bit of space in between the wing back and the left side, uh, 
yeah, the left-sided um, of the three, left-sided yeah. centre-back, it gives them that, that bit of room, doesn't it, to sort of uh, have a go and, and sort of work a, work a shot or work a cross. So, yeah, I think that, that shape will probably be what the Welsh play and I can sort of see the thinking behind it and, yeah, that'll give them the best chance to get a result. Yeah, they defended quite well this tournament as well, Wales. They've uh, faced the most crosses into the box, apart from Macedonia, out of every team. Uh, and they haven't really given up many chances. The XG they've given up, uh, compared to the number of crosses and stuff, is pretty good. Uh, my only worry for them would be, if you concede an early goal to this Denmark team, I'm not sure where the game is. It's not. It's not. I know England are playing at home, but it's not actually home advantage. It's randomised now, so I don't think they're playing in, in Copenhagen, but... Uh, oh no, it's in Amsterdam actually, sorry. So yeah, there won't be a home crowd there, but I don't think you want to give an early goal up to Denmark team because I think they just press you so high uh, that it's a bit of a nightmare to get back into the game. So I think Wales probably needs to be quite strong in the first half. But uh, lead us on to predictions then. I'm going to go Wales. I can't yeah, yeah. against uh, my mum's team. Uh, the two best players on the pitch play for Wales. And I think that in any sport, that's an advantage, isn't it? I think maybe, maybe eight of the other nine players... Uh, best players all play for Denmark potentially, but I think that the best two players on the pitch. Uh, yeah, are those I wouldn't. Two for me. I wouldn't argue with that statement. I think you're right. I think Ramsey and Bale are probably yeah head and shoulders above any other player in terms of what level they play at. Um, but do you think that although Wales are a very good team and they they get the maximum amount of their resources, um, I do just think having watched the Danish in the last couple of games. Um, they were they were ticking along very nicely against the Belgians. They're very unfortunate mm-hmm. to get the result there. Um, they come off back off a win. Um, yeah, I'm just going to go for the for the Danish. I think it's going to be a close game. I'll go two one. I think Bale or Ramsey to get the the goal for the Welsh. But I think the Danes will just have a bit too much in this game. Yeah, I'm not sure if it will happen as much because of Wales not necessarily having the ball around the back as much. But uh, the last two games, Denmark's pressing has been incredible. And like you said, I'm not sure whether that's just emotions. After such a horrible incident, and the whole obviously the whole crowd was was full in those two games, um, but yeah, if they press like that, it's it's so hard to play against, and Wales are going to be a true counter attack team. But yeah, I think it's arguably the closest game out of any of these, maybe apart from the England game in terms of ability of the two teams. Um, but yeah, interesting. Uh, we've got two differences then then so far. Uh, that leads us on to the next game then. So we've got the Netherlands versus Czech Republic. So Czech Republic ended up going through third uh, in the group when they after losing to England, and that they're kind of reward for that is uh, playing against the Netherlands. For me, I think Czech, Czech aren't a bad team. They're way better than I thought and their two holding midfielders are very, very good. Um, but I think this could be one of the easier games in the round. I just think that uh, the Netherlands have played really, really well. We spoke about Benaldum earlier. He's been great. Depay's been great. Frankie de Jong's been incredible in that position. Uh, and their back three are not amazing, but they haven't given up many chances. So I think the structure of the team is relatively good, even though the whole of uh, the Netherlands want to play 4-3-3. <laughs> the manager wants to stick with a three at the back and it seems to be working. What are your views on this game in general? Do you see it the same as me? That I think this could be a bit of an easier game uh, for a knockout it's, game? It's not going to be as good as that game in 2004 between these two, is it? What a game that was. Um, I think it was 3-2 to the Czechs that night. And Rusticky played. Yeah, um, I'm not sure if you played that game or not. Um, it may have been a bit early for Rusticky, but it was, I remember Nedved hit the crossbar from about 35 yards. It was a stupendous game, back and forth. Milan Barros called an absolute belter. Um, but yeah, I don't think this has got nowhere near the same quality on the pitch as uh, back then. Um, this game won't have anywhere near that, will it? But um, yeah, I, I think you're right. I think 
Um, the Dutch, they're, they're, they're favourites. I think they'll go through. I think they'll win it. Um, and I think they'll they'll do so being quite sort of, again, a bit boring, a bit pragmatic, playing that three or, or five at the back, however you want to view it. Um, but yeah, I think you've got to kind of discount sort of the, the resilience that the Czechs have showed to get, you know, out of the group. And um, yeah, I think they'll make it hard. I think it won't be a great game to watch, if I'm honest. Um, neither team have been that easy on the eye. Um, but yeah, I, I do see the, the Dutch sort of, yeah, maybe 1-0 or 2-1 or, or something like that. But yeah. Yeah, Dutch are the sort of team when they get a lead as well, they can pass you to death with, with how good that midfield is. That could be a, a killer for the Czech Republic who don't press incredibly well. But uh, all I will add for a bit of hope for, for the Czechs would just be, I think they've scored the most set-piece goals out of any international team now for the last three seasons. Uh, and when you watch their game, you just see how physical they are. Obviously, Thomas Suchet's just been a prime example. He's not even their biggest player in their starting lineup. So mm-hmm. I think that uh, their corners, their long throws, their long free kicks are going to be crucial and it's the same as any game, isn't it? We Anyone who watches football all the time in the modern era knows if a team goes 1-0 up and then plays a low block, they've just got to ride their luck, haven't they, for 60 minutes and hope the other team don't break them down. And, and you can win a game 1-0. That'll, that'll be their hope. Uh, and obviously, they've got Schick up front, who's been really, really good so far, so you never know they could score. But I just think Frankie de Jong and Ronaldo in that midfield are, are a bit too good. And I, I see the Netherlands winning probably 2-0, maybe 2-1, like you said, if the, if the Czechs score from a, a set piece. But yeah. I don't think it'll be the most uh, entertaining game. But it's on just before Belgium-Portugal, so it'll be maybe a nice warm-up before yeah. uh, before <laughs> that se- that second game on Sunday. Uh, that leads us on to the next game then. Uh, probably the worst, unfortunately. I don't think there's any Swedish or Ukrainian people listening to this pod, but sorry <laughs> if there are. But yeah, Sweden versus Ukraine, last game as well uh, of the knockouts. It's the, uh, the one that's going to end on a bang, hopefully. We could see a lot of goals because... Both teams aren't great at the back, are they? I know Sweden are kind of quite pragmatic. They win games normally 1-0, but against Poland, they really looked quite good in the second half. So maybe we'll see a few more goals in here. But it's the hardest game, mate, I think, for me to call out of any of these. I think they're very evenly matched. Yeah, I've gone with my prediction. I've gone for Sweden here. And actually, I think that's just um, sort of um, going back to our pod last week. I think there's a little bit more about the Swedes than I do about the Ukrainians um, in terms yeah. of their sort of playing personnel and their system and stuff. Um, and obviously, they've got this Isaac up top who's sort of been getting so, rave reviews. So good. He's yeah, so good. he's been getting rave reviews. He's been linked with quite a few big teams, isn't he, in Europe. And I just think they seem a little bit more potent, a little bit more organised. And um, it'll be a close game. I don't think, you know, the Ukrainians will roll over and get their tummies tickled. But um, I think this could be a little bit similar to the... Uh, yeah, the Dutch and the Czech game, it could be a bit more of a, a sort of, um, well, it's the last game in the in the round, isn't it? So it could be yeah. going out on a bit of a whimper, maybe it could be, yeah, maybe not the best game to watch. But yeah, I see the Swedes going through and having a bit too much um, in terms of a goal threat uh, for the Ukrainians to handle. Yeah, Ukraine got Malinovsky, like I said before the tournament, and he's been very, very good for them, actually. Against that Macedonia game where they won, he was sensational, but... I think in the third game, uh, I think that was against yeah that was against Austria, I believe. And they needed to win to to win the group, um, and they were just absolutely terrible. And that would worry me because they're as a team they've trended up Ukraine over the last couple of years. Uh, they've got a couple of more well-known players, like I said in the preview podcast. But they were absolutely terrible, and they've got worse as the games have gone on. So I'm not quite sure whether that's the way they're set up or just. You, you know how tournaments work. If you have a bit of bad form, it's hard to shake that off, isn't it, over like four games because they happen so quick. 
So yeah, that would worry me. Um, I think before the tournament, I would have probably said Ukraine. But yeah, I think I'm going to lean Sweden as well. Um, and I just Googled uh, Alexander Isak, who's the, the Swedish player we're referring to, who's probably should have been mentioned in our ones to watch because uh, he's been incredible for them. The three most recent transfer story, uh, top stories about him explain how good people think he is or, or how good they think he's played. You've got uh, an article that says how Pep at 14 saved Alexander Isak's career, which I find quite interesting. Uh, Arsenal battle Real Madrid for Alexander Isaac and consider £60 million pound bid. And then the other one is Barcelona and PSG fight out for £80 million Isaac. So that shows you how his stock's gone up. And maybe he could be the player that we were talking about earlier with the uh, the crazy signing after the uh, the tournament finishes. Arsenal definitely punching well above their weight uh, with the sort of teams that... <laughs> of the teams and those rumours. Um, yeah, he, he looks... You know, um, you know, it's unfortunate for Zlatan to get injured. I'm not sure if they would have played in the same system together. Um, but it, it could be a blessing in disguise. And like, um, yeah, sort of passing the torch on to a younger player maybe. But um, yeah, he looks classy. It's really good. Yeah, he does. He does. Hey, you never know. Arsenal have got more money in the bank than all those teams just because they're all in so much debt. So you never know. It could uh... Apparently, <laughs> as, as you keep telling me, as you keep telling me, Orny uh, breaking the news about Ben White and stuff. Yeah, yeah. Uh, We'll see. It'd be interesting, Sam. That's a whole other pod, though. The, uh, the Arsenal, the Arsenal uh, suffering. <laughs> well, that's a good link, actually, because Ben White plays for England, and England is the next team we're going to talk about. The final group game. Uh, we left a uh, final knockout game. Sorry, we left this one to last. So England versus Germany at Wembley Tuesday. Absolutely gutted that it's at five o'clock and not eight o'clock, and we've got the Sweden game <laughs> as the second game. I think no one in England is going to watch that Sweden game if the result doesn't go well. At Wembley, uh, obviously Germany now play this new system where they play with wing backs, uh, no traditional wingers. They don't really play with a traditional striker, so arguably their team is probably the most fluid in the whole tournament. The, the only thing that's kind of structured is uh, Gundogan and Tony Cruz basically playing as two number sixes together. Uh, just in general, mate, what are your thoughts on this game in terms of how do you think it's going to look? Is it going to look like all the other England games in terms of us just trying to? keep the ball and be a bit more pragmatic or are Germany going to outpossess us so much that we're going to turn into a counter-attacking team, do you think? Yeah, I think Gareth's going to change it up. I alluded to it earlier in teams in terms of uh, Portugal maybe changing their system or Belgians maybe changing their system to sort of like uh, outthink the other. But I think Gareth, he'll go to that three or, or five um, at the back um, to sort of match um, the shape of the Germans. Um, I do think man for man, like, you know, not getting carried away with this coming home or anything like that, but they're definitely not the entity that they were. Um, they don't have a focal point. Um, they've got quite, not I wouldn't say limited personnel at the back, but we spoke about it last night, didn't we? Ginto and Rudiger, they, they're okay. They're, they're good defenders and Hummels has lost his legs. So you can definitely get at them. So if I think if we put enough pace and quality around Kane, um, who that is, I know we sort of tend to disagree a little bit on that, but um I do think that it will be a game which Germany will probably have the majority of possession, but we're quite smart and pick and choose our chances to get forwards. But I don't think it's going to be a goal fest. It's not going to be a classic, <laughs> but um, hopefully, hopefully they, they, you know, they do they do what they need to do and they get the result at Wembley, at the English, and knock out the Germans. Yeah, it'd be a beautiful thing to see. I think not just because uh, I am a Leeds slash Calvin Phillips fan, but. Uh, Tony Cruz won some of the most touches for any t- any player in any one team of the tournament so far. What are your views on him? Because he doesn't play high enough for Declan Rice really to 
to follow him around the pitch because Declan Rice really truly does shield the back four slash five, whatever we're going to play. Do you think it'll be up to Calvin Phillips probably to, to try and follow him around? Because if we play a number 10 alongside them, obviously they're not. Or do you think there's a chance we could play three eights? Or who, who's going to mark Cruz, I guess, is the best question. I, I, think, I think it depends a lot on the situation with Mason Mount, doesn't it? I think he's someone who could come into the England side and he could not only sort of be a threat going forwards, but he could get them around and get amongst and stifle Cruz. Um, he's got that in his locker. I think Foden maybe to a slightly lesser extent, but he's also got that pressing, um, you know, built into his game. That that's that sort of uh, propensity to get forwards and to close close down players, cut off uh, passing lanes, this sort of thing. So yeah, I think one of those two will probably have to start to try and nullify Cruz. But yeah, he's a world class player. He'll get yeah, on the ball and he'll 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 spread the play and you know. That sort of the, the, the crap thing for England is you've got the situation where if you do sort of uh, start to stifle Cruz and you know they're not really going through him, they've got Ilgai Gundogan next to him who could do the pretty yeah. much the exact same thing. So and Goretzka be, as well, and they've got Leon Goretzka, yeah, Hercules, yeah, yeah. it's absolutely huge, isn't he? But um, yeah, yeah. yeah it, it'll be interesting to see how Gareth sort of looks to mitigate because I don't think you're going to stop them from playing, but it's just where they play as opposed to how they play. I suppose is the um. The big, the big challenge for England. Yeah, yeah, I agree. So I've got three kind of specific questions then. Obviously, the last one's going to be who's going to win. Second to last one, so you're prepped. I'm going to ask you for your England lineup because we'll spend a little bit more time, obviously, being an English-based podcast. But first, just from a German side of things, obviously, you're an English fan. Uh, they're going to play that formation that has the, the, the wing-backs and they're basically going to play with the, the three up front, I guess. Well, two, the, the, whichever three they pick. Who on the team? Who would you want to see on the team sheet the most, or least, I should say? So, for example, if they say Kai Havertz is going to play the false nine, are you more worried, or would you be more worried if they say, "Right, Muller's going to play the false nine, or Werner's going to play up front"? Like, which lineup would fear, make you fear the most as an English fan in terms of who's playing up front? Um, I think Muller, just because he's one of those annoying people who you can look. He he doesn't look like a good footballer. Like everything about him says he should be rubbish at football, but he has that annoying sort of habit of scoring important goals and being in the right place at the right time so I think Muller poses the biggest threat in terms of scoring in a big game like this so yeah I'd be the most concerned if he was up top if it was Werner or Gnabry or Havertz whoever playing in that false nine of course they're going to be a threat uh, for different reasons but I think Muller probably is the one for me. I've still got PTSD from Bloemfontein, mate. So, um, <laughs> yeah, I, I think Muller for me, he, he's definitely the one who I'd be most nervous about sort of playing in that position for sure. Yeah, I think most people feel that. I think he was injured going into the third game and they hoped not to play him due to knee injury, but they were losing. Uh, and there was a cool re- uh, article written in The Guardian where they said that he was kind of sprinting up and down the touchline like a madman waiting to come on, even though they'd said before the game he's not fit enough to play. Uh, and then he came on and apparently he played really, really well. And like, coincidentally, they scored their equaliser 10 minutes later. So I think he is a big moment sort of player, isn't he, Muller? But for me, I'm actually going to go the opposite and go Werner just because the English media have slagged him off all year for his lack of goals. And I think it'd be very, very fitting if... Uh, there was a little slide rule pass down the side and he used his pace and got in and, and scored. I think I think his pace could really, really worry me with Maguire being out for so long. And depending on who we play at left back, we'll talk about that in a second. But there's a 
much slower option I think someone like Werner could, could probably benefit from, but we'll see. Uh, so in terms of England lineup, then, everyone disagrees on this. So we disagreed last night. Uh, you you go first. Start us off with your shape because there's a bit of a debate. Yeah. We stick to that same formation or because this is the one team that plays wing-backs or, well, one of two. If we play the Netherlands later on as well, it'd be the same. Do we swap to match them like someone like Gary Neville's already come out and said that you should swap yeah. to match that system? Yeah, I, I think I'm sort of I'm definitely in that camp. Um, so I've gone for essentially a three-five-two. Um, so you've got the three at the back, and you've got the two sixes, and you've got um, sort of the two wing backs, and you've got a, a ten, and you've got a Sterling playing off Kane. But yeah, in, in terms of that's my shape. So in terms of the personnel, then so Pickford in goal, I've gone for the back three of Walker at the right centre back. Stones in the middle and then Maguire at left centre-back. Yeah. Um, for the holding midfield players, I've gone for the combination of Rice and Phillips. Um, yeah. And then for the wing-backs, I've gone for James. And I'm going to put a little Bakayo Saka in after his man-of-the-match performance because <laughs> I'm, I'm an Arsenal fan. But also, I think if you've got man-of-the-match in the last game, I think it sort of makes him a little bit undroppable. Um, and I think... Yeah, just the way he sort of progressed the ball and and brought his team up the pitch, drew fouls and made things happen. I think that's something which is just yeah. I just think it's something that we we could do with having. We've been, we've looked a little bit benign, especially down the left hand side um, in the last couple of games. Um, we we sort of need a bit more potency going forward, and I think he could offer offer something for us there. Yeah, um, and so, so can James as well, actually, can't he? From the other side as well. Yeah, I think it, it gives us balance if you've got those two there. I think they're, they're very quite similar attributes. Maybe James is a bit more physical, and Sack is a bit more of a of a technical player. But um, in terms yeah. of their sort of basic attributes and their understanding of the game, and I, I think they're they're both very comfortable on the ball. I think it just gives us a nice sense of balance. Mm-hmm. And then I've gone. Mm, this is the this is the tough one now. So I'm gonna. This is your number gonna, ten, is it? Yeah, so I'm going to go for Foden. If they were both, there was neutral circumstances, I think Mount would have gone in for me, just because of what I said earlier about the sort of cruise situation. But um, Foden, I, I think he can, he's more than capable of doing the job. He's probably technically our best player, isn't he? But um, yeah. I'd put him in as the sort of 10. Um, and then Sterling playing just off Kane, and then the likes of Sancho and Grealish and Henderson to come on off the bench. But yeah, that, that's my system. That's my... That's nice. what I think we should go for, but I'm sure you'll be politely disagreeing with that. Well, I actually quite like that team. Uh, if he played five at the back, I would pretty, I would enjoy, if that was the team he named, I'd really enjoy it. I think um, I really like Foden. I'm, I prefer Foden to Grealish. I think unlike probably eighty percent of English people, but uh, no, I don't dislike that team. And basically, in that system, you're saying Sterling can go wherever he wants, can't he? I know he'll yeah, play close to Kane. Yeah. But... Yeah, you can do everyone's. But you know, I like that team. Um, seeing as you've picked the team that you you would play, I'll go along the same lines. I'm not sure Gary Southgate is going to play this. I think you're right. I think you'll play five, and I think you'll play Walker. But so I'll go Pickford in goal. Uh, I would go the four-two-three-one route. I think um, I've changed my opinion from last night, and I'll probably go for that. So I go Walker right back. Uh, Stones Maguire obviously at centre back. Kieran Trippier at left back, which we spoke about last night. If he does play four, there's no way he's going to not play Trippier. Mm. Um, in our opinion uh, from yesterday holding mids will be the same I think they offer you solidity against a team that basically play very central apart from their wing backs all their other players like to play centrally so I think you need those two holding uh, then on the left you have to play Sterling because he's the only player scoring at the moment 
Uh, up front, I'll still go with Kane. And then I had the similar to debate to you about the other two players. Um, and just purely on what I would pick, I would pick Foden at 10 and Sancho on the right. But if Gareth plays for the back, I think he would play Saka on the right and Foden in the 10. I don't think he'll mm. play Saka and Grealish, in my opinion. I think it'll be one or the other. And I don't think you want to move Sterling to the right just after a little bit of success on the left. I think he likes playing on the left. And why, when Kane's not his most confident, I don't see why you'd then make Raheem Sterling play on the right when he doesn't want to. So I think I, I would probably play that team, but it would not shock me if he went with Mount just because he loves Mount. But I agree with yeah. you. I think not training all week is a real big issue because you can't even work on the shape. I know he's a professional footballer, but it's hard to, to not train for... 10 days properly and then come in to play Germany, a team that are going to have a lot of the ball. I think that's difficult, personally. Yeah, I think you've, yeah, you've raised some good points there as well about Kieran Trippi. I think, yeah, like you say, if he goes to the back four, he's a shoe-in just because of his sort of um, his experience of playing under very organised, defensive, well-drilled coaches. He's very good in duels. He's also very handy from set pieces as well. Yeah, um, our set pieces weren't great, were they, against Czech Republic? No, uh, it's very good. We failed to clear the first man on quite a few occasions, actually. And then um, yeah. you've obviously gone for, uh, well, maybe Jadon playing on the right. But um, yeah, what That's a story what if, he, do, if, he, yeah. if he comes on and uh, makes an impact <laughs> in the knockout rounds. But, um, Probably yeah, the worst team to play him against because they know more like how he plays than anyone else because he yeah. plays in Germany. But yeah, the only other thing I would add, if he plays five at the back, it wouldn't shock me if he kept Saka. Like you said, he loved Sack. The way he was talking about how he trained in the week, uh, he's basically getting in the team because he's trained better than Sancho. That Southgate said that four times now that he's trained arguably the best out of anyone over the last two weeks, and that's why he's in the team. I wouldn't shock me if he played Walker right centre back and he played Trippier right back, um, because then if Saka can go forward as much as he wants, wing back, you've still got that base, you know, with Trippier on the right hand side, mm. uh, and Gossens is obviously the left wing back, isn't he? So or Gossens. So good point. I think actually, Didn't he think could play. He could play Trippier at right wing back um, and just go with one of the younger attacking fullbacks. And then you say to Saka, like, do what you want, don't you, down that left side. Basically, yeah. just, just make an impact. But interesting. I think, I think the, the team comes out an hour and a half before the game unless it gets leaked in the morning. I think everyone's going to be standby waiting. And if Grealish isn't in the team, I know that the fans are just going to be so negative, uh, unfortunately, before the game. But I'm, I'm quite confident. So that leads on to the last question then. Obviously, prediction for the... For the yeah, you can actually give a specific score if you want. I'm going to go England win. Uh, and I don't know why I've done this, but on the work predictions, I've actually gone 3-1. Uh, I think England will be winning 2-1 and it'll be a very cagey affair and it'll just be like an 80-odd minute <laughs> counter-attack and goal. It won't be a 3-1 type of game. It'll be a 1-1 type of game. But I think England or I think Kane will score and then at the end someone will break through with, with how many attacking options we have coming off the bench. I think we'll score a late goal to make it 3-1. But maybe that's my overconfidence. Yeah. Uh, what about you? I try not to get carried away with these sorts of things, especially with England. But yeah, I do have a bit of optimism. I do think that we've got that home advantage. Germany have conceded quite a few goals already in the tournament. Yeah, um, yeah. They look quite dodgy at the back. And I just think we've got the personnel. We've got the We've got the system. I think we've got everything in place to sort of cause more sorts of problems, drag them out of position and to really hurt them at times. Yeah, I'm going to go for a 2-1 as well in quite a scrappy game. Um, nice. Yeah, I don't think it's going to be, you know, a spectacle to watch. Um, it's not going to be that exciting, but I just think it's going to, yeah, it's going to be a tight game with, yeah, I think maybe we'll finally see Hurricane score. I don't know. We'll see. But um, 
yeah, I'm, I'm quite confident, mate. Yeah, I think, like I said earlier, written in the stars maybe for Werner to score. But the other thing, it could be written in the stars for Gareth Southgate to win a penalty shootout against Germany yes. in the Euros. What about that? That'd be amazing, wouldn't it? Yeah, I would, my nerves couldn't take it. But if you told me we were definitely going to win at the end of it, I think it would be one of the most satisfying ways to actually win. But well, uh, the moment, yeah, at the moment I'll take a 3-1, a bit more comfortable win. But we'll see. Uh, that game's on on Tuesday, just before the uh, Switzerland game, uh, the Sweden game, like we said. But that's our roundup then of all those games. I think the plan is for us to come back and do this next week when we've got two more nights without football where we preview the quarterfinals. And then same again the week after when we've got a night off for the semi-finals and then the finals. So thanks again, everyone, for listening. Uh, go follow us at MOT Pod. Eventually, we're going to have the, the new name and the new Twitter and everything and the logo all done. But for now, we, we've left it the same name. But in a couple of weeks, hopefully, we'll be back with a brand new brand. Uh, Matty, thanks for joining me and enjoy the rest of the footy, mate. Yep, thanks, everyone. Enjoy the remain, you know, remaining games of this round. And then, uh, yeah, we'll catch up next week. <laughs>